welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the fields. My name is Dr. Chelsea Slotin, and I'll be your host for the episode. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Dr. Peggy Grenache about the European Society of Black and Allied Archaeologists, her involvement with the Rising Horizons exhibit, and her research on archaeological foodways and transatlantic slavery. Dr. Brunash is a lecturer in Atlantic slavery and director of the Veneva Center for Slavery Studies at the University of Glasgow. Completing the group today is Emily Long. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Thank you so for inviting me. To be here. And, and Dr. Brunash, we are so excited to have you. Your research is absolutely phenomenal. And I honestly, I've had so much fun reading about the different things you've been doing. Thank you. I, I suppose um, I am a little bit out of the ordinary for an archaeologist, but, you know, if you have to live from hand to mouth, it, it makes sense to be ambidextrous, so. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Um, so we have had the benefit, Emily and I, of reading up on some of your research, but for our listeners, Peggy, can you just give a brief overview of the work that you do, where your research interests lie, your background in archaeology? Sure thing. Uh, so um, my background is in Atlantic slavery. I've had the opportunity to excavate and write on uh, sites on both sides of the ocean, particularly uh, West Africa, uh, in the French Caribbean, as well as North America. Uh, my doctoral thesis or my dissertation, I guess it depends on who your listeners or your listeners are from, focused on enslaved women in the French Caribbean uh, with a particular focus on uh, Guadeloupe. And a lot of my interest and work is about trying to come up with new ideas of Black resistance beyond mm -hmm. the traditional tropes of either um, outright uh, rebellions, mm -hmm. you know, the overt forms of, of um, fugitivism, um, or, or some of the other passive ways that, or covert ways that we tend to talk about. And one of the ways that I've been most interested in is looking at food ways as a form of resistance. In particular, I, I think of it or conceptualize it as culinary resistance. Especially when we think about how often the primary sources talk about how little enslaved communities were given to eat and yet required to do the most laborious tasks on mm -hmm. uh, plantations, especially if you're thinking about the sugar economy. So yeah. there's that work that I do with food because why? I'm obsessed with food in every format. In every way, I'm obsessed with food, and I find it very easy to connect large theoretical ideas with something tangible and real that most people get. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. As as I've been as I'm working now in Scotland or have been for quite some time, and particularly at the University of Glasgow, I've been now turning my sights to the British Caribbean and in particular looking at the British Windward Islands so uh, and looking at ideas of resistance in the margins and mm -hmm. thinking of places like 
Grenada, uh, St. Vincent, those islands that weren't the major uh, sites that historians or archaeologists tend to uh, write about or investigate, nor are they sites that many people consider when talking about uh, slavery. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Hmm. Well, Jamaica's easy because one, it was the it was the crown jewel of the Caribbean islands that the British possessed. Mm-hmm. Barbados is easy because it was the first, right? Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. established in 1624. So Barbados and Jamaica are, are were the two longest established possessions. But it wasn't until the, really, the second half of the 18th century that... St. Vincent, Grenada, Dominica, um, some of these other Windward Islands really started to make any sort of uh, impact or contribution, should I say, to uh, the colonial project for various reasons. And what I'm finding is because of that, they're ki- they were kind of on their own. They, they just, as long as they were still making sure that cash crops were were producing and sending uh, their final products back to to Britain. Pretty much, what happened on those islands were a bit different than what I'm I'm remembering and studying in places like Jamaica and mm-hmm. Barbados. So I'm starting out historically, and then mm-hmm. hopefully can see if I can push my way into the archaeological investigations of that. I think that. As we've seen globally in the past year, more and more people are kind of reckoning with the long lasting effects of slavery, um, including in the UK. I know several months ago, um, the Colston statue was torn down and thrown in the harbor. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think that that sort of work is very, very important, um, kind of always, but particularly relevant maybe today. Absolutely. And University of Glasgow has really been at the forefront in in being an institution that first turns inward and wants to reckon with its connections as well as the legacy of uh, slavery mm-hmm. in all forms, whether it was in trade, whether it was in some sort of participation by those that may have attended the university and then eventually financially help to benefit the institution later on in all facets. And the University of Glasgow has, in the last couple of years, signed a a memorandum of understanding with the University of West Indies to to tackle these injustices that happened historically and, and make good through a sense of reparative justice and how those legacies that are still still affecting uh, black and brown people, particularly in the Caribbean because of these structural uh, forms of oppression mm-hmm. and disenfranchisement. How can the university provide or perform reparative justice that can start to break down these structures of, of oppression and and disenfranchisement and, mar- and marginalization. It is fascinating. It's definitely 
cool to see that happening in the UK because honestly, that's a spotlight that I'm not as familiar with as shining into that area. And so it's neat seeing worldwide these conversations happening more and more. And I mean, there's definitely part of me that's like, why haven't we talked about this before? But it's great. It's at least happening. And I find it fascinating. And I mean, fascinating and depressing how Mm -hmm. invasive slavery was in so many aspects that we don't expect. So like that, you know, slavery um, allowed funding for universities, slavery Mm -hmm. allowed for merchant classes to build and all this that people aren't aware of. It wasn't just the plantations. There was so much more to it. And I think it's so cool how your research highlights that even more and more. Absolutely. And we're, we're trying to do this from so many different angles. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in one way, it's the visibility and acknowledgement of the horrors of the past. For mm-hmm. example, um, University of Glasgow's Center for Slavery Studies, the first of its kind in Scotland, we chose to name it after an enslaved woman, Beniba, uh, who was considered legally the property of uh, one of the, uh, Cunningham, one of the rectors of the University of Glasgow. So little is known about her. We just knew that we knew her, her monetary value as a field laborer. And we know that she had at least one child. We don't even know the name of the child. And that's wow. it. So to stop and actually name a center after a person who had so little visibility and even less rights and power on the plantation landscape says a lot. And 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 taking the time to, to let people know that one, you must say her name. You must acknowledge that this person did exist. And Beniba is, for, for those who are in the know, it's the name for uh, girls born on a Tuesday. Okay. That's incredibly powerful. So even, so it could be, so that's just part of it. Taking time to verbally acknowledge the existence of someone that was normally not supposed to be seen, that there is so little record of her, that she herself was not allowed to pass down her history, her experiences. Mm -hmm. We're trying to reactivate some of that through just the naming of buildings in that sense or or the establishment of of institutions in other ways it's making sure that we are teaching more courses mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. other ways it's it's making connections with other institutions so that there can be some sort of upward mobility by pushing students to uh or at least not pushing but allowing students to learn from each other across the ocean. Students from the Caribbean can be learning with students from Britain mm-hmm. and you know, physically moving from one place to another. That is when COVID finally allows us <laughs> freedom of movement yet again. But so, you know, being able to have these graduate uh, classes or postgrad, as we say here, um, that can benefit them economically and and professionally later on in life. So have you found like, so with the monuments situation where people, there's a lot of pushback against tearing down monuments and so forth. Mm -hmm. Are you finding the same level of pushback in terms of 
bringing to light the how ubiquitous slavery was in Scotland in ways that we that a lot of people didn't expect. Are you finding that kind of pushback, or has food and food ways been a good way to kind of bring them back in? Both. Excellent. There is there is pushback um, because in, in the last year, especially of uh, the uh, the events of last spring of 2020 in the summer and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. on a global scale, there are plenty of people who just want to stick their head in the sand and, and say, this has nothing to do with me. Slavery was such a long time ago. How is it still an issue now? And mm-hmm. and in many ways, not always, but in many ways, I understand why they feel that way. Because it's not taught. It's, it, it's been a conscious decision not to teach people about this dark past. And more importantly, whatever has been taught is usually the, the I suppose, the fault, the guilt is only upon the merchant class, the planter class that financially benefited. But what is not often discussed is that as you were saying, a lot of that money that they made, they then went and did philanthropic endeavors. They gave to the community, they gave to businesses, they gave to institutions. The reason why Glasgow became the second city of the British Empire was because of all of that money that came out of the slave trade. It was because of the slave trade and slavery that that money was able to fund the British Industrial Revolution. Those connections aren't made easily for most people. Mm-hmm. The fact that sanitation, um, improvements in sanitation, hospitals, things like that, all were generous donations by the elite class that had uh, financial endeavors in the Caribbean is not something that most people think of. So so it's very easy for most people to say, look, we were always poor. We came out of the, the highlands and we suffered from the clearances and we're not complaining about that. Why do we have to talk about slavery? It's, it's the rich people that got all of it. But that's not true. It filtered through the entire society. And so whether people want to acknowledge it or not, they do benefit. They did and they do continuously benefit from that. And there has definitely been, unfortunately, some pushback with um, the National Trust has started, they've made a list of the connections that their properties have Mm -hmm. to slaveholders, um, slave traders. That's bizarre Uh, on so many levels. And a lot of people have gotten very upset about, you know, like, it being too woke and why are you shoving this in people's faces and i think economically if you look at the the british you know aristocracy there was a reason that they started marrying their titled sons off to the daughters of very wealthy merchants and it's because they didn't have a lot of money so a lot of the things that we think about as being quintessentially british of these you know like grand country estates um that was built, preserved, continued, supported by money from slavery. But um, that pushback, that, that pushback is, so is also is also um, 
I guess, logical because while generally speaking, it was supposedly, and I, I specifically say supposedly illegal for slavery to exist on British soil, but yet there were enslaved people throughout Britain. Um, unfortunately, here, most people didn't see slavery as as you would have seen it in the Caribbean, as you certainly saw it in North America. It wasn't visually here in the way that we know of it elsewhere. And so that also makes it hard for people to to swallow the connection between slavery and the the beautiful homes that are up for tourist attractions these days. It's as a society, we're supposed to celebrate what makes us better than another country, right? That's what nationality is national pride is about. But then when you're when you're having to also accept the dirty laundry associated with it, mm-hmm. then it's it's hard to continue to have that civic pride. It's very difficult. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure, and I, I know everybody feels differently, and it's probably the, the anthropologist in me that's <laughs> like, but it's good to be uncomfortable. It's good to learn these things. It's good to challenge your misconceptions. And then my students stare at me blankly and they're like, I'm having an existential crisis. But it's like- That's exactly what it is. This. That That's exactly what it is. It's just, you know, for, for certain people, it's like, look, I have been working all week long, more than 40 hours at some horrible job. I just want to go and have a pint with my friends. I don't want to have to think about something else that makes me uncomfortable, right? It, it's, it. let's be honest, we really just want to relish in something easy. But yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you that we need to confront this because the reality is for a lot of people, the legacy of slavery is still affecting us. Mm-hmm. Especially when we just just to name, uh, you know, government sanctioned brutality on black mm-hmm. and brown people, and why that's allowed. Mm-hmm. And there and, and enough people are waking up and being able to say, okay, I really thought it was all in their heads, but good God, really another person shot unarmed, and not understanding the connection between. Slavery, and not just, it's not just about slavery, it's about the construction of difference and othering those that are mm-hmm. not white. Mm-hmm. And the laws that were put in place to make sure that there is a disenfranchised group of people, and whatever, whatever they try to do, it's always going to be their fault that they don't succeed. Mm-hmm. Very few people make that connection. Because it's not taught enough right. that it's not just about slavery. And, and that's why so many people have an, a misunderstanding of if slavery ended, why are, why are black people still, why are the descendants of, of enslaved people still in such a horrific situation? And it just, it isn't taught. You're right. I, mean, I don't know about in the UK, but uh, in the US, it certainly wasn't taught to me and um i've seen some horrific examples from you know school textbooks occasionally floating around on twitter which is why we're we're trying to make differences and some of the things that i'm trying to do um is through food 
food I find is it's it's a it's a lovely little trick that kind of tricks people into opening themselves up to actually hear what you have to say. And everybody eats, right? Everybody has everyone has to eat. Everyone has to eat. But then when you start to explain how some of these really meager ingredients could make such an amazing dish and it was created, innovated by women, it allows people to start thinking about who did all the cooking in their family. What are the histories, you know, of, of especially if you grew up um, working class or very poor in Scotland? I've heard so many people think saying, you know, I think about my granny or my great aunt, and you know, we had very little, but we made the best dishes with with these ingredients, and we loved it. And it's and we still look back with nostalgic pride mm-hmm. at what we could do. And then being able to make some connections between the oppressed, whether they are white or black, whether they are Scottish or from the Caribbean or from North America, and and see how, despite these legacies of uh, power dynamics and oppression, people always find a way to, to fight against it. And food is one way to celebrate in that struggle. Well, and I think that that's a really good point to end on. And because we are unfortunately at the end of our first segment, but we will come back after the break and continue talking about the ways in which food can be really excellent for addressing issues of um, inequality and some of the other research and work that you've been involved with. See you after the break. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been joined by uh, Dr. Peggy Bunash, and we've been talking some about her work with uh, archaeology of Atlantic slavery and food ways. We're going to transition a little bit this segment to talk some more about public engagement, and this comes with a disclaimer from me, uh, because when I did the introduction, I talked about the Rising Horizons exhibit with Trailblazers, it's actually Raising Horizons. Sorry, dyslexic, and I can't, you know, read the thing that I typed up five minutes before I read it. (laughs) (laughs) But Peggy, do you want to talk to us a little bit more about how you got involved with the Raising Horizons exhibit? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I would love to. Um, I was approached by three badass women archaeologists. Uh, who do work from various different uh, areas in the world. And they, they're they known as, uh, they're under trailblazers. And they they're decided awesome. they are freaking amazing. They're amazing people. They are amazing scholars. Uh, Becky's new book on on uh, Neanderthals is, is blowing up all over the place. Anyway. Oh, Kindred. Yes. 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 
just, they're amazing. It, basically women who somehow do it all research. They're good people. They're always trying to, to help bring more visibility to women in archaeology and the geosciences. And that's what, that's what Raising Horizons was about and still is mm -hmm. about. I was I don't even remember how they found me, but whatever they did. And they chose a number of women who are, who do terrestrial archaeology, underwater archaeology, women in the geosciences to uh, get dressed up in period costumes, I suppose, and mm -hmm. be photographed by the amazing Leonora Saunders, uh, an award-winning photographer who that alone should be enough. But no, she works in the community with with school kids and she's just, oh, a shero. <laughs> shero. She does so much, very much like the ladies of Trailblazers. So basically to once again, bring more visibility to the women of geosciences and archaeology in particular, because there is still that how would you say it? The public memory or idea of archaeology is, is uh, you know, someone with a fedora hat and mm -hmm. Indiana Jones running around, not understanding that while, yes, there may be more women doing archaeology now and there is some visibility, there have always been women doing archaeology and they've done some amazing. That stereotype. Exactly, exactly. And so uh, a number of us were were uh, approached to dress up in period costumes and be photographed. And this was made into a photo exhibition that toured all over the UK. And I, I mean, it was just one of the highlights, I have to say, was when our portraits were uh, basically on tour and ended up at the House of Commons in Parliament in oh, London. Wow. wow. That was such an amazing experience. It was a December, and to be in the House of Commons and this magnificent room, and you look up and there are these huge portraits of white old men with the long, you know, wigs on, mm -hmm. and underneath there there are portraits as so women. Powerful. And and the invitation included leading women in politics and sports in the military you know it was it's a celebration it was a celebration of being able to those who identify self-identify as women and the contributions they provide in society through work and mm -hmm. and, and and to each other it was it was it was amazing that is so cool and the photography as you mentioned it, it, I'm an amazing photographer, but the photography is absolutely gorgeous and highly yeah. recommend our listeners to check out the Trailblazers website as well as the Raising Horizons um, link on their website. It, it's mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah, it sounds like it was so much fun too. Did you get to pick your person or was that something that they um, kind of had their eye out for someone that would work for their um individual that they were wanting to frame? Uh, uh, no, I don't, I wasn't, um, I didn't have a choice, I don't think. And it was, it was fine, actually. I mean, it's, there weren't that many, at least black female archaeologists that I could have uh, chosen to do that far, 
far back. But it was it was a great experience. And, you know, and I actually took the time to learn a little bit more about about um, Compton. And she was she was the archaeologist that, you know, was made the discovery of, of um, the great Zimbabwe civilization and actually said, oh, wow. you know, you know what? Um, well, there were others who were saying, uh, let me correct myself. There were others who had always been saying the civilization obviously cannot be uh, one connected to sub-Saharan Africans. This had mm. to have been uh, white Europeans, like the Greeks or the Romans, and made some sort of settlement in uh, in in Africa. And she said, "No, you're wrong." These were sub-Saharan Africa. These were Black people that made this great civilization and left these amazing material culture and 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 built environment for us to study today. Yeah. Yeah. Time for shameless women in archaeology self-promotion plug. We've done a couple episodes on some of those other um, early female archaeologists. So if mm-hmm. you are interested in learning more about the role that women have played going back to the founding of archaeology, um, you should check out some of our other podcasts, which we'll post links to in the show notes. Shameless, shameless self-promotion over. <laughs> <laughs> so with this, um, with the Raising Horizons exhibition, it seems to really fit well with, it seems like your passion for public outreach and public engagement. And it sounds like that is one of your, your big things that you love doing. It is. And it it's something I I suppose I stumbled into. I have never felt comfortable with the idea or the sentiment that archaeology is a closed field for only a certain group of people. And anything right. that we do find and write about is also a closed it's for a closed society. I have never been comfortable with that. It is my belief that as archaeologists, our service should be to the public, that mm-hmm. we, are, so. we are discovering, we are excavating, discovering, and writing about the past of us as humans. Why should it be stuck in the drawer of the basement museum? Why should it be stuck in... Uh, a dissertation depository that the majority of the world population is never going to to read. Why are we not more in, why are we not taking the time to be more um, forthright and, and making sure that our history is truly ours to share and talk about and study the world over? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's, important and I know a lot of archaeologists that I would talk to want the work that they're doing to have an impact and the way that you have an impact is Mm -hmm. by talking to the public to make sure that material is accessible that it's not just you know moldering away in an archive somewhere it's a really good point and what makes it uh what has always made it a bit harder for um communities of black communities of uh, you know descendants of enslaved Africans, that's just, if that's the only thing 
that we can be connected to. Why, why would you want to hear about it? So many people want to just forget about the horrors of the past. But so many of us that happen to be black and archaeologists are finding histories to celebrate. So many of us are that are black and our archaeologists are happily finding new ways of talking about the experiences of enslaved Africans and their descendants in ways that does not continuously perpetuate us as passive victims. That is extraordinarily important to us. That is part of the reason in, in the earlier discussions of civic pride is very easy when there's such positive things to celebrate about the past. Mm -hmm. But when so many of us are connected to a past where we were stripped of our own, our own uh, ethnic and cultural beginnings, origins, and forced a new type of history that continues, unfortunately, in the present to discriminate, disenfranchise, and oppress us, why would you want to celebrate that? And so many uh, so many black archaeologists that I know of are looking to to find ways to talk about the past that frees us as well as honors our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And foodways has been one of the best ways for me to do that. The Makes idea sense. that Food that doesn't just sustain you, but feeds your soul mm -hmm. in ways that the that you know primary sources didn't even know about. As yeah. a way to connect people, and I don't know, there's just something really beautiful in your research of where it's like this feminist approach of looking at enslaved women and like it's like we're gonna live, and here's this food, and we're building these traditions, and we're gonna keep on going despite these horrible situations and that mm -hmm. they generated this beautiful food tradition out of this terrible situation that we still we still eat yeah, well, yeah we, it's incredible. people love people love soul food people love creole cuisine in the caribbean we still love we will fight anybody who tries to take that away <laughs> from us and and we know for you know we know that a lot of of some of these dishes are directly linked to, to slave food, mm -hmm. but it's the positive part that we, we continuously make remake, eat, serve again and again, because it, we still find joy and celebration in it. And that is something that I, I find extraordinarily powerful, something dark and horrible that we can find pride as a form of resistance, active resistance, that is something we still hold on to and celebrate even today. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, when you think about archaeology, think, oh, well, it's about the past. So being able to say, no, this is now recent. The food is here. It's present. We make it. We mm -hmm. eat it. We talk about it. It is still as much a part of our lives and having as much of an impact. Um, and it's a good way to make people realize, like we were talking about in the last section, that the pots that slavery had its fingers in mm -hmm. are many and varied and maybe not 
as recognized um, as they should be, but it's still very much present today. Absolutely. on our world. And I'm not sure that was a great metaphor, but. <laughs> <laughs> but we, it, I suppose I stumbled onto looking at foodways because of the way I was raised. I was, you know, I was born and raised in South Florida in Miami. Um, my parents were from Haiti, you know, poorest third world nation in the Western hemisphere. But, you know, as, as a working class family, uh, you know, relatively poor, but working class family, you know, my mother would go out of her way to, to some of these, um, these markets that sold uh, Caribbean uh, vegetables and, and ingredients. And I did not understand why when there was McDonald's right down the street or, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, you know, Publix is half a mile away. Why are we driving 40 minutes to go to some Caribbean market in this hot Miami sun? And for my mom, it wasn't a question of, I am rebelling against the structural racism of, it wasn't anything like that for her. Her answer, when I asked her, why can't, why don't you just shop here? Why don't we just eat what's available right now? We don't have to keep eating Haitian food. And her answer was very simple and yet profound. And her answer was, this is who I am, right? It's not, she's not eating it because there's nothing else to eat. She's eating it because it was a choice. This is who she is. It is so ingrained in her DNA and her identity as Haitian that even if she's living in America and there are plenty of other types of food to eat and we can afford it, her choice was to constantly and continuously make that. And the moment she said that, I started to realize every other immigrant community does the same thing. Mm-hmm. They, it's, it's a choice to stay connected to your heritage, to your identity, to your culture, even if it came out of something horrible like slavery. And I thought that was so powerful that I needed to know more. I needed to understand more. That reminds me a lot of um, Michael Twitty's uh, The Cooking Gene. Yep. And and going through about the um, cooking in the South and um, uh, how it originated from slavery in the Deep South. And I'm honestly wondering just with your your connection with, with these foodways and bringing them to light and engaging with the public, are you thinking of potentially doing something similar to highlight your research through a cookbook? to share these recipes and the history? There are times that I, I dabble in that. <laughs> there are times <laughs> I, do, I do dabble in that. Um, I, I'm not quite sure just yet how I would do it because I don't want to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, anyone who does work, or in my experience, so let me clarify, in my experience, People like Michael Twitty and his brilliant work, and even Kelly uh, Fanto Dietz, who who is white, but is so engaged in in foodways of the American South and particularly that of Black foodways, and others. There is a deep personal connection to it mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. requires you to be very careful in what it is you're, you're choosing to share. 
because it, mm-hmm. what Michael's work is and was is so connected to him. So any anyone who tries to discredit or disparage that book is actually doing it to him and his identity. And I would need to make sure that I've got my my shield of armor <laughs> before, before I do anything like that. Perhaps, yeah. perhaps. But we know that you're involved in some other really amazing projects um, coming up, you know, including the, the new Center for uh, Slavery Studies at the University of Glasgow and the European Society of Black and Allied Archaeologists. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be a great keying off point for our next segment. So we will see you after the break. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archaefantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been joined by Dr. Peggy Grunash talking about some of her work. So far, we have discussed Atlantic slavery and foodways as a means of identity and uh, foodways as a means of identity and uh, resistance, as well as some of her work with public outreach. We're going to continue that a little bit in this segment, talking about some work, I believe, uh, Peggy, you've put together a course for Future Long, Future Learn, so anyone who is interested can uh, learn about transatlantic slavery with you. Yes. Uh, it's The site is futurelearn.com, and it's a massive open online course. It's free uh, to become a registered learner, so you can do it whenever you want. There are not any uh, required assignments to do either. There are exercises and, and things. But basically, uh, it's set up to be a four-week crash course on uh, British participation in slavery from the transatlantic slave trade and interactions in West Africa, West and Central Africa, and into the Caribbean more so, less so so of the colonies of North America that eventually becomes the United States, more so about Mm -hmm. the islands in the Caribbean. And we take a very um, transdisciplinary approach to it. We have interviews, we have exercises. There, there. We also provide further materials for people to read. There's comments that you can make and engage with other people learning about this. Of course, there's a whole section on food. So in the four weeks, the first week is is on um, West Africa. The second week is on basically slavery and, and the horrific experiences and and why it became such a thing. The third week, we talk about white oppression and black resistance in so many different forms, such as maternal resistance. That's something that a lot of people never think about. The last week, the fourth week, 
uh, we move into emancipation, more so into some of the Black experiences after uh, slavery ended, uh, the situation of, in the, in the UK, there was an unfortunate occurrence that happened more recently. We call it the Windrush scandal. Yeah. The Windrush was one of the first ships to bring, uh, I suppose, uh, ex-colonial citizens of Britain to the UK to work and help rebuild the infrastructure of Britain. They were invited to come mm -hmm. and work after World War II and subsequently have gone through such problematic experiences, racism, riots, police brutality, and then more recently uh, told by the government that if they, unless they can prove that they are actually citizens, they would be kicked out of the country that they've been living in for 30 plus years or more. You're wow. Kidding. Yeah. It's yeah. a pretty uh, devastating situation. Yeah, yeah. So we, so we also talk about the ideas of, of race, of identity. You know, there are plenty of people that don't know. There are uh, descendants of white colonists that see themselves as white Creoles. And what does that mean? What does that look like? Mm. It's a complicated identity. Exactly. So we, we talk about all these uh, more modern qualms experiences, questions. We, of course, Black Lives Matters comes up mm -hmm. and everything right up to the uh, deplinting of statues, not just in the UK, but in the Caribbean. That's happening there too. We haven't heard a lot about uh, statues in the Caribbean, mm. um, I have to say. Mm -hmm. uh, I honestly so hadn't that's... heard about that much of in the Caribbean at, at all. I figured it was yeah. more of a uk america centric and canadian centric that's amazing that it's crossing into other areas too for the same reason why should a predominantly black culture that was forcibly brought to these places still forced to celebrate uh, these these men that perpetuated their enforced brutal servitude to the nation it's definitely a, a moment of reckoning. Mm -hmm. Well, in the statues, I would imagine, like, especially since it's become such a, I mean, it's been a thing for a while um, that people have kind of rallied around bringing down. But since the Black Lives Matter movement has gone global, and like you're saying, in such a forceful way, I think it brings light to any part of the colonial world um, where statues have been erected in places even such as Australia and New Zealand. I know there have been more pushes for um, indigenous, uh, not just identity, but their claim to sovereignty and stuff is pushed along a similar line. Um, and in the American Southwest, uh, it's been a thing for a while as well. Um, but again, there's been similar pushes like as far west um, into Oregon here, you know, there's 
we have our own ugly history with racism. Um, but with the height of the Black Lives Movement and the pull of a lot of statues throughout the U.S., there was an interesting pull of um, pioneer statues, just the generic celebra celebration of um, the westward movement. So mm -hmm. I think just it kind of brings to light um, the what some might call um, oh everyone should call the evils of colonialism, but also how deeply um, those tentacles really reach, as has been mentioned in previous um, segments, mm -hmm. um, much farther than most people really think about. But it, I, I do find it interesting that this experience we're having now, questioning mm -hmm. uh, forcibly, removing some of these statues and not everybody's on board with that black or white actually i yeah. i do personally know uh black people who are against uh these controversial uh actors but it is a question it is an argument that has been going on for quite some time i mean for those who studied the french revolution they did the same thing they tore down they tore down statues, which you know, each each nation has to answer the reasons for why that needs to happen for their own for their own present and future uh, situation. If one does remove or deplant these statues, what's put in its place? Are we trying to erase a history that was there? Isn't that, I, I worry that if it's, if these statues are deplanted, to try to erase a history, that sets up a, a potential problem for the future. Mm -hmm. that makes that, sense. And I, I, that is my worry. That's all, that's all. Do you think there's a, a good compromise in these situations where the monument itself may be um, a visual reminder of this pain? Is there something that could be something that could help in engage people in terms of, of course, I don't think people read plaques per se, but like really big interpretation boards or if mm -hmm. the monument is taken down, it should be put in a museum with an exhibit or do you think there's a happy compromise in these situations? Personally, I think a cemetery for these statues would be very interesting. Were you, you know, a designated piece of land that you walk through and have to learn why it's there now and where it used to, you know, to know where it used to be and why mm -hmm. it's now here. I don't think any of this should be forgotten. Our, we need to question who and why we choose to memorialize and commemorate, mm -hmm. and yeah. how do, how do we how do we make our present and future more inclusive because the past wasn't. I love that idea. Me too. Yeah, yeah, gar yeah a garden. We need a snappy title for it, but something that is in, uh, that's evocative, but also a bit troubling. 
We want yeah. discomfort. We want discomfort. Yeah. People the racist to... sculpture garden. <laughs> yeah. there, there does need to be a reckoning both in the broader, you know, culture that we live in, as well as within the within the field of archaeology, yeah. um, which you know is not always the uh, friendliest or most welcoming place no. to mm-hmm. black archaeologists, indigenous archaeologists. Um, and I know that you, Peggy, have recently been involved in the creation of it's the European Society of Black and Allied Archaeologists. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the goals of that society, why its formation is so important at this moment in time, and what we can do to help? We're still, we're st- we still, funnily enough, are arguing, should we be called, sure, acronyms sound as ESPA or ESPE, we're still fighting over that, but <laughs> ESPA or ESPE, the European Society of Black and Allied Archaeologists, there are nine founding members. Uh, all of us are women, but not all of us are black. Um, some of us are, some of us are not, but we have identified the need to come together and and found a society that can address some of these concerns that we have, some of this, uh, not individuality, this, this isolation that we have felt in, in Europe. And though we, we call ourselves the European Society, and, but we're based in Britain, However, not all of us work in Britain and not all of us work necessarily in Europe either. We just happen to be located in Europe. Um, We, some of our aims and goals um, are are much like like you would find with the Society of Black Archaeologists uh, in the States, um, SBA. Some of our aims and goals is to provide a safe and supportive space for archaeologists of color to thrive. We want to increase the visibility of archaeologists of color and promote their achievements and improve representation. We also want to create a network of anti-racist archaeologists, regardless of whether you identify as a person of color or not, Um, Mm -hmm. which is why we call ourselves Black and Allied Archaeologists. Mm -hmm. So you know, create this network of anti-racist archaeologists with like-minded individuals and organizations. We also want to advocate for archaeologists of color and we want to improve our field and create more equitable conditions in archaeology by working towards decolonization, increased opportunities, uh, sharing of resources, uh, repatriation of objects, better hiring practices, more sub- supportive work environments, improved field work uh, guidelines, and an increased awareness of structural racism in archaeology and, and how we can combat that. Yeah, and so needed. Absolutely. And as, as you know, recent events of the last few weeks have shown, we have a, we still, we still have a fight. Mm-hmm. Whether you are a person of color, whether you are a, a woman, or uh, whether you are um, identifying as uh, queer or intersex or just anyone that's not <laughs> white and male, 
with the world on a plate. It's it's mm -hmm. um, we we believe in inclusivity and that we need to hold ourselves uh, in more with more responsibility to be better mm -hmm. yeah. to each other and and to the next generations of archaeologists coming through. It sounds like an amazing uh, society. I'm gonna have to look into it some more because it, it's recent, isn't it? it you know, developed uh, or founded, I guess, in the last six months, year. Yeah, we we came together, um, I suppose, over the summer, and you know, it had a very organic beginning. It, it uh, a few archaeologists who somehow heard about me reached out to me and wanted to feel some sort of support that they weren't mm -hmm. living in a vacuum. And some of the, you know, and the stories that started to come out about being the only black archaeologist or, or archaeologists of color, mm -hmm. because as I told you, not, not everyone, not all the founding members are black. Um, there were just the same stories over and over again of feeling isolated, of having to deal with overt racism, um, microaggressions in the field, in their place of work, because some, some of us are um, tied to organizations that, uh, like the British Museum and um, heritage organizations, especially mm -hmm. down in England. Mm -hmm. um, how do we combat that? How do we, because HR doesn't seem to help many of us. So. How how do we find a place to feel safe and and also create a platform that we can find others that have gone through this experience and help them? We want to be basically active and supportive, just as mm -hmm. SBA in the States is doing. As it turns out, there are other organizations around the world that are also doing the same thing. People are collectively coming together to support one another, regardless of what race they are or how they identify, they know that there are certain segments um, of the archaeological profession that have it a bit rougher than others, and it shouldn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. That's that's awesome, and my genuine hope is moving forward that that organization, the organizations that are forming in the United States will just see more positive improvement and not only the field of archaeology, but hopefully that will just kind of keep flowing out as we're, as we continue fighting. Absolutely. And whether that be because people have just finally stopped and listened to mm -hmm. others or because they're forced to change. And we don't have a problem with that. Sometimes mm -hmm. you have to be forced. As, as we've been talking about, there needs to be an element of discomfort that makes you recognize and reckon with the problems of, of disenfranchisement. Mm -hmm. and, and there do need to be like, consequences for when you behave in a manner that is inappropriate, because all too often in archaeology, we've seen, you know, people will get and I use this term loosely, caught, and then it comes out that everyone has known that this particular you know, professor or PI or mm -hmm. site manager was a problem for decades, and that it's just that no one kind of had the 
the political will within archaeology to say, no, this is not okay. You cannot re represent this discipline. You cannot act in it if you are going to behave this way. Right, because archaeology is comprised of individuals of society. And so if society has allowed it in every other uh, field, why are we surprised that it also happens in archaeology? Yeah. Yeah. So it's time to do better, everybody. Yes. Yeah. Don't and be afraid to rock the boat. Exactly. <laughs> um, Support that, those who do rock the yes. boat. Yes. Yeah. On that note, we are at the end of our third segment. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining uh, me today. Peggy, it's been an absolute delight and amazing experience. Um, thank, you with you. So so thank you so much. You ladies are wonderful. You're doing good work. You're doing good work. And you we try. sincerely hope you want to come back sometime and yes. chat with us again. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me know. Uh, we great. would love to have that. And we're sure that our listeners would love to hear from you again as well. Um, if you are not already subscribed, please like, subscribe, and follow us. We're on Twitter at WomenArchies. And, and you can find us online at www.womeninarchaeology.com. And if you have comments on today's episode, or if you want to get in touch about coming on the show yourself, you can always reach out to us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.